Well, hello there, and welcome back to Vegetarian Zen, a peaceful place for vegetarians, vegans, and the veg curious to share tips for living a more compassionate plant-based lifestyle. I am one of your hosts, Vicki. And this is Larissa. In this episode of the Vegetarian Zen podcast, we are pleased to welcome food writer Peggy Brusso, who is going to talk to us about her new book, The Contented Vegan, and we're going to discuss white bread and jam vegan. What is that? (laughs) How to avoid being one, more specifically. Uh, The power of the 80-20 rule when it comes to your diet and two family meals. What do you do when not everyone in your household is vegan? She outlines some really cool stuff in her book. So we're going to get to that. But before we do that, we have... (laughs) Why were you nodding your head? (laughs) I thought you were going to say we have a new rating. Oh, no. Yeah. By the way, we don't have a new rating. So... Maybe that's a good way to, uh, <laughs> to ask for a rating. If you head out to vegetarianzen.com forward slash review. Yeah, we haven't read a, a new rating in a couple no. of episodes here. So uh, I don't know. Maybe folks are busy and stuff. So if you if you haven't left us one, we would greatly appreciate it. Vegetarianzen.com forward slash review. This episode is brought to you by the Golden Apple Roundtable. Who are the members of the Golden Apple Roundtable? These are the folks that help ensure that the lights stay on at Vegetarian Zen by providing us with monetary support via Patreon.com. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for artists and creators to get support from their fans, followers, and community members. Many people don't realize that there are costs involved in putting together a podcast, but we do incur costs for media hosting, website hosting, equipment, etc. Any monetary support that we receive through Patreon goes directly back into the cost of producing the show and keeping it going free to our listeners. If you're interested in supporting us on a monthly basis, please head out to patreon.com forward slash vegetarian zen and there you will see a video of Larissa and me. And in that video, we discuss the mission of Vegetarian Zen. On the right-hand side of the page, you're going to see some various support levels, anywhere from a dollar a month to $50 a month. And you can also customize your uh, level of giving, by the way. Those are just some suggestions. Certain levels will qualify you for some Vegetarian Zen swag, such as a car magnet, recyclable grocery bags, stickers, or a t-shirt. Even a dollar a month can go a long way to help keep the podcast going. So thank you to our current, our past, and our future Golden Apple Roundtable members. Thank you. If you're not interested in contributing on a monthly basis, we also have a one-time button located on our website that says buy us a juice. If you go to vegetarianzen.com forward slash support, you will see that at the bottom of the page. And you can provide us with a one-time monetary contribution to help support the show. All right. And while we don't have a new member of the golden apple round table we do have an upgraded she leveled up Woo! brandy conyers thank you so much she upgraded to the awesome avocado level that's our victory card <laughs> <laughs> which also sounds a little bit like a turkey when vicky does it not when i do it but when she does it that's our our family victory card oh yeah yeah we Picked that up a while yeah, back. It's a, a long back. story. Maybe we'll get into it one day, but that's our, <laughs> our family victory cry. But uh, yeah, so Brandy has uh, upgraded her pa- patronage to the awesome avocado level, which makes her awesome. And I, I also just want to say, so thank you for that, Brandy. But I also want to say thank you to Brandy for subscribing to our uh, junk journaler journal. Um, I bit my tongue yesterday. <laughs> and so everything I'm saying, my tongue is like fat. <laughs> 
<laughs> and everything I'm saying is coming out garbled. But, Isn't it uh, funny? It's one of those things that you take for granted. You just take for granted the size yeah. of your tongue and then, and then until you bite it's it, not. And then it's, yeah. <laughs> oh, but anyway, getting back to Brandy. Uh, she also um, had subscribed to our Junk Journalers Delight <laughs> subscription box and uh so thank you so much brandy for that we really appreciate all of your your support all right are we ready to get into the interview with peggy all right so peggy peggy brousseau is a food writer cook and committed vegan she's written or co-written 24 books on cooking and nutrition originally from minneapolis she's now based in london all right let's go ahead and bring peggy on the show Hey, Peggy, welcome to the show. Welcome. Hello. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Larissa. I'm really happy to be here. We are ecstatic to have you here, and we really want to talk about your book, The Contented Vegan. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I will try. Um, I'm American by birth. I was, I was born and grew up in Minneapolis, in Minnesota. Um, but when I was a, a girl or a young woman, I came to London. And shortly after that, I, I moved to the country here in England, and I ran a small holding for about 10 years. And that's really where all of this started, because I two things happened. I met an animal for the first time, <laughs> and I came, became acquainted with plants and growing plants. Um, the animal was a cow. It, she was a sort of rescue animal that was left with me temporarily at first to look after while they found a home for her. Uh, she was a beautiful dairy uh, Jersey cow. And they have the, the, the sort of storybook soft eyes and lovely kind of small stature. And uh, so I said yes. And she was pregnant at the time and gave birth to a calf in the, the little meadow that I had. And all of this was an intense experience for me. It, I mean, I had literally never met an animal. I was frightened of dogs as a child, and there were no pets in my family home. And this was baptism by fire in one way, and just an ecstatic opening for me to become acquainted with other life forms. Um, but I very quickly realized I did not want to be part of the, of, of you know, animal husbandry on the, on the smallholding. I didn't want to raise animals and see them um, chopped into meat. And uh, so she was very instrumental in teaching me a lot about myself and a lot about how the world works. Um, I did milk her for a time and I made cheeses from her milk, but I also developed a, a strong relationship with her, if I can put it that way. It's very, very bold. But she just taught me so much. And we were able to communicate. She came when I called to her from the gate. Um, it was a wonderful experience. And it, it's my other experience of the smallholding was to do with plants. Um, because, again, I'd never really understood what they were or how they I would say ruled the world. <laughs> uh, um, the the smallholding had a large orchard of about fifty apple trees, some cherry trees, pears, plums, um, and then a, a huge herb garden which I planted, and as well a vegetable garden which I planted. 
So in all of this, I felt this great exuberance for plant life and a fascination for how it, it made everything work in the world. And that's what I took with me back to London. And from that point, uh, I, I no longer had a small holding. And, but I did have all this knowledge and this excitement. And so I began, first of all, I switched to a, a vegetarian diet and began to study plants and herbalism. Gradually, gradually, I moved away from even a vegetarian diet. So it sounds like yeah. you had a pretty strong why going into this. So, I, you know, we, we talk about when we became vegetarians in 2013, that I, it's one of those things where I don't think we'd actually said, Hey, let's become vegetarian, but we watched a couple of documentaries. So maybe in this, in our subconscious mind, we were kind of moving that way anyways. And we watched uh fat, sick and nearly dead and educated. And by the end of educated, we both decided we were not eating meat any longer. And we, gave a lot of that away. And we talk a lot about, I think when you struggle with certain things, you have to revisit your why. And I'm sure like that cow, and I, I totally get what you're saying about the connection with animals. We have five rescue animals in our house. We have three cats and two dogs and they have each their own little personalities. One of them was going a little, being a little rambunctious just a few minutes ago. Luckily I was on mute when you were talking, <laughs> but um yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible. You know, when you have a strong enough why, I think it's, and it kind of leads to one of the things you say in your book, The Contented Vegan, is that eating a vegan diet is not hard work. And when I read that, I kind of thought, yeah, it's, I think it's not hard work when you think about, yeah, it's, it's some work, it's some adjustment, I think, when, especially like um, someone like me who has born and raised, and like I say, will die in Texas, which is a very, very meat centric state. But I think when you have a strong enough why, those challenges kind of diminish. Would you agree with that? I totally agree with that. I think that uh, it has to come from one's personal question why. It has, it has to be driven by that because when we're living with that inside ourselves, that's what motivates us to search, um, to find out the right answers, to, to set a sense of direction, um, and to take the steps that we need to take to to live according to what we've what we've discovered. My goal, I'm a perfect example of taking a very long time to become, you know, fully vegan. Um, I've been through every single stage of pre-vegan diet, if you like, because I didn't have anyone to bounce the ideas off of. Things have moved so far so quickly. In recent years, I'm really pleased about that, um, that there are answers out there for people and there are discussions to be had with others and they're, they're very available. But I think without that, as you call it, the question why, um, we do tend to flounder and feel, feel like an oddball instead of a person who's acting or living according to their inner motive and their ideals. I totally agree with that. And, you know, one of the things I think for for us and also for, for a lot of other people who are adopting a plant-based diet or have, have you know, uh, had it for a while is um, variety. And I know that you have a section in your book uh, uh, called The Power of Variety, 
where you talk about diet patterns and how um, how someone can go about upgrading those patterns. Um, so what is that all about? Can you talk more about that? Yes, I can. I love talking about that. <laughs> um, but, well, variety really is fundamental, I think, to um, keeping one's health while eating a, a, a vegan diet or plant-based diet of any extent, actually. Um, I'd like to say it applies to people who eat an omnivorous diet as well. But unfortunately, that pattern is so strong, so strongly focused on four or five animal-based foods, as well as a very limited number of plant-based foods, that it's just created a very strong cultural, social statement. And it's hard to get away from that and build more variety into it. But I found that once uh, I, I began eating a plant-based diet, variety became essential to in order to keep healthy. And it, 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 it was part of my excitement for following that way of eating because suddenly I could see all these amazing foods from other, other world cuisines. Um, from, from each season, they changed. And it was, again, I, I, I do suffer from enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, it was very, very exciting for me to learn all about the great variety of plant-based foods that are out there. And what I've come to realize is that variety is, is one of the four cornerstones to good health. Um, the others being whole food, if you can, um, in-season food, if you can, and food that is locally grown or ideally organically grown. Those four things, variety, whole, organic or local, and in-season, uh, deliver the greatest nutrient value from your food. And it's, it's that nutrient value that keeps us well and stops us wanting to overeat and to, to pick away at high-calorie food in the hope that we'll get some nutrients from it. Um, and it, it contains the, the, this, this package of four cornerstones of, of good food that contains a lot of the phytochemicals, the enzymes, vitamins and minerals and so forth that really boost our health and provide us with a base uh, of good health. You talk about this concept called seeking. Totally agree that when your body is, and this happens to me quite a bit, and I'm sure a lot of people, is when you are too reliant on processed foods as part of your diet, that your body will, you of course, consume it, but you're so hungry because your body didn't get what it needed from that particular food. That's right. It, um, not only are you are hungry, but you, you don't know what to eat. Your body is searching for a nutrient. I'm sure of it. And once it gets it, you feel that's enough. And so I call it white bread and jam veganism. When a person doesn't kind of pursue this idea of nutrient value, and when they just rely entirely on, well, if not white bread and jam, then on food that's very highly processed. Sometimes, especially in grains, foods can lose 90% of their nutrient value in the processing stages. And this is, oh, this is upsetting to me because when you select foods that are fresh and whole, you know that there's goodness in them for you. 
Yeah, I think in our part of the world, that's called the Fritos and Swedish fish diet. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so when we became vegetarians on that particular January day, uh, I like Larissa said, we thought, okay, we just got rid of all the meat. We're good to go. And we still just had a lot of processed foods and it didn't take, but a few days for us to really feel the effects of not having any sort of anything. I mean, we were just, just empty calories is what we were having. So yeah, it really doesn't take that long for your body to start rebel and get into this, like you said, seeking mode where we're looking for good food. And that's actually what inspired us to start this podcast in that same year that we became plant-based is that we were learning a lot of things that we didn't know. And variety was just I was just so surprised at how much variety there is. And I think especially in this day and age when there's so much information available online through podcasts, through other blogs, through all this kind of stuff that even just a few years ago wasn't as readily available. It's You can just Google, you know, just Google and get a lot of uh, recipes and ideas for, for meals. I think it's very supportive. I'm, I'm so uh, happy that that's the case. Because yeah. people are, people are in in their no, great numbers are trying to shift towards a plant based way of eating, even if not fully. You know, it, it might take people a while to say, "I want to, to eat a fully plant based, a vegan diet," but even a small shift towards more plant based will improve their nutrient um, intake, and hopefully bring them along into the full vegan way of life. I've Actually, uh, in the book, it's it's a little bit understated, but on my website, I've added a a sort of chart about twelve vegan food groups, and I've done this because when we go out shopping for food, we can have a, a mantra going on in the back of our mind, saying, "Oh, I have to do vitamins. I have to do minerals. What are where where shall I find them?" And it's like we we need a degree in nutrient in nutrition just to go shopping. So I, I just, I expanded the idea of food groups to include everything I could see. And so that it would be easier for people to say, okay, I'll have as many of these as I can every day, but I'll try to have something from each group every week. And that takes the pressure off. Uh, it just says, just relax, enjoy the textures and colors and of everything you see and select according to how they look rather than worrying about precise quantities of this nutrient or that. And so when you can combine that idea with these four cornerstones, which include variety, um, I think you could, one can feel quite confident that they're doing their best. You know, and I love that uh, concept because, you know, I think a lot of times when when people transition to a, a, any different type of diet, whether it's plant-based or whether, you know, someone's trying to, one of the kind of more fad diets, uh, it becomes more of a label reading exercise where, oh my gosh, I have to read all the labels to make sure I'm getting enough fiber, to make sure I'm getting enough vitamin C and all of this. Uh, but with 
your 12 food groups, I think that it makes it so much easier because if you just focus on eating, you know, a variety of whole plant-based foods, you're just kind of going to get all of the nutrients you need um, naturally. Or at least close enough. I think if you get too overwhelmed, it's so hard to, people will just give it up because they think that's another thing I have to keep up with. And, you know, we've said from when we started, because this whole, like I said, our podcast was built on essentially our mistakes. That's things we were doing not right at the beginning and then how we were course correcting them so that we started to feel like we could function. (laughs) This reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Peggy, a show called The Good Place with Ted Danson, where people are trying to earn points to get into heaven and they find out that nobody has earned enough points to get into heaven like in a long time. And they ask why when they're doing some investigative work and they go back and they say, well, this person bought, yeah, they bought organic food, but the organic food was, was um, what they didn't know was like 10 steps back was, you know, they just don't know the whole process and where, where there was something bad that happened along the way to get that food. And it's like, I think people can be so overwhelmed by that. And they have good intentions that they want to make sure that, you know, things are free trade and all that kind of stuff. And that's so important to understand that. But I also think that you can overwhelm yourself. So there's definitely a balance to where you kind of do as good as you can with what you have available to you. I agree. Uh, That's so right. Because the word I use is sustainable. I know that's an overused word at the moment. But if you start this journey, um, it's best if you can continue it. And to do that, it has to be something that's simple, in a sense, not to say people aren't clever, but that doesn't place another burden on them. And I think that's what you're describing is this kind of fraughtness about uh, the tension about, am I doing this correctly? Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Forager Project. Family-owned and operated Forager Project crafts 100% organic dairy-free yogurts, kefirs, milks, and sour cream using their hero ingredient... Organic cashews. Which make the creamiest, most delicious base for all of their products. Now, I posted a photo of a couple of their products that I was trying in our close Facebook group, the Peas and Carrots Society. And I asked our community members if they had tried any of their products. And boy, I got a lot of responses from folks that not only tried their products, but loved their products. For vegetarians and listeners, Forager is offering a special limited offer coupon for a free, free cup of yogurt. To get your coupon, go to foragerproject.com forward slash cultivate health. And while you're there, you can check out hundreds of delicious and easy to make dairy free recipes that they have. Cultivate health with Forager Project. Always organic, always plant based. Let good food be. And now back to the show. There's another point I'd like to bring up to do with this 12 food groups and, and about looking and choosing your, looking at and choosing your food. And that is that we, we, we are a little bit too distanced from our food in its natural state. And I'm a, I've learned to roll up my sleeves and get my fingernails dirty and to, to discover what it feels like, what these roots feel like, what they smell like. Um, just to explore and wash the whole grains to you know sort through the beans this is a pleasure to me 
because I'm learning and connecting with food in its natural state. And that also brings a sort of nourishment to a person. I think that it encourages, somehow it encourages a person to be naturally creative with the food they prepare then from what they've selected. And I, I just feel that that is very, very important, that people don't hand over uh, their, the, the choice, the choosing of their food to someone else, that it, it becomes a part of them and that they look after themselves by doing it. It also feels very rewarding. I mean, we don't have a lot of uh, land here where we live, or Larissa and I, we don't have a lot of land. And so we're kind of limited with what we can actually grow ourselves. But we do, you know, go to like local farmers markets. Of course, that was before the pandemic. But, you know, I think local is one way you can get closer to your food. As you just mentioned, we, we grew our own herbs for a while. And then um, I'm very excited. We haven't done it yet. We just have our, our weekend got away from us. But uh, this past week, we released an interview with Doug Evans of the that he wrote a book called the sprout book. So we'll be doing some sprouts and I'm really excited to do that. Uh, sprouts are very, do you, do you consume sprouts, Peggy? I do. Have sprouted? I have yeah. sprouted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Larissa and I probably in all fairness, we, I say we don't have land. Like it's a, it's an excuse for not having a garden, but we don't, Plants is two plants is about what we handle in the house now. Like I said, we have five animals, so they keep us pretty busy too. But um, I'm looking forward to this sprouting because, like you said, it feels. I think it's going to feel so. It feels so good to think about making my own food. Well, and I am a notorious plant uh, murderer, so you know I've <laughs> I've tried lots of different vegetables and herbs and and flowers over the years, and and um, either I murder them or they just commit suicide because they don't want to <laughs> they they don't trust me. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, I I know it's not for everyone, but do you, I hope you understand what I'm. Uh, getting at is that this this idea that um, we have an awareness, even if we don't like to grow plants or don't want to grow plants, that we have an awareness of food quality when we select it ourselves, when we select it for its visual appeal, for its um, any anything in its real natural state, um, and that gives us. Uh, I think we we as humans have a natural affinity for that if we allow ourselves to do it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that uh, next to, you know, growing it ourselves, which, as I said, I've proven not to be very um, adept at, uh, you know, we like to go to pre-pandemic, of course, uh, to farmers markets. And we have a lot of local farmers and local growers who uh, would, you know, sell their their fruits, their vegetables, um, you know, all sorts of different plants and and wares at farmers markets every weekend and we used to go regularly and I you know I think that was that's that's as close as we got and and it's still a very satisfying feeling to be able to talk to them and ask them questions about you know the the fruits and vegetables that we're buying and the, the grains and the homemade you know breads and and all the things so I think that's very satisfying as well. I agree. We have a similar experience. Our our farmer's market is still running, but we have to go in our masks and social distancing and so forth. But uh, there's an atmosphere at, at those markets, isn't there, that, that does inspire a person to slow down and select carefully and to just enjoy this sort of expression almost of 
all of these whole foods and freshly made foods. Peggy, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your book. Um, one of the things I really like about it is that you you don't just jump right into recipes, although the recipes look amazing and there are plenty of those, but you do take some time at the very beginning to talk about some kind of fundamentals. And just tying back to what we were saying, you talk a little bit about the whys, you talk a little bit about kitchen gear, um, and you also talk about the importance of you, you have a section called one, two, three, good morning, where you give some simple morning habits that can help us get off to a good day. Can you talk about those? I'd be happy to. Yes, yeah, th- this is sort of overlooked. Uh, it's, it's an overlooked aspect of eating, I think, is to remember what we're doing to our bodies when we starve them for not just the night when we're sleeping, but for half the day when we get up get ready to, to go to work or school. And then we're supposed to do top level work some of some form while we're there before we get any sustenance whatsoever. And especially for children, this is a really bad idea because they're growing. They need more fuel at that time of day. Um, but also it sets up patterns that have health implications later in their life. I think diabetes is one of them. Obesity is another. That it 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 sets up this pattern of nocturnal living, because we are not a person who doesn't eat breakfast is not feeding their body when the light says it's time to, <laughs> and when the the chores chores of the day say you must have something in your stomach. <laughs> so um, I'm very uh, I, f- I place a lot of importance on it, and I know some people don't like they are not naturally attracted to eating straight away, but even a small amount of something that will help to sustain them for a couple more hours is of great benefit. The other aspect of this idea of one, two, three, good morning is, there are two aspects really. One is that it sets up a a sort of mental emotional pattern that can help a person start the day in a calm manner so that they approach the day rather than land in it on their head. (laughs) And the other thing is that there are body functions like bowel movements that are greatly improved if one eats according to uh, the natural rhythm of the body, which is affiliated with the daylight. So failure to have healthy bowel movements has long-term and quite significant health impacts, uh, uh, consequences again. And some of these can last into adulthood. So that's why I encourage it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of morning routines myself. And I find that when I bust out of those and I do something a little bit like don't eat right away or just do something different. Another thing that works for me is moving right away. I think when when your body is so just still for eight hours or so, uh, you need to do something to help you wake up. And one of the things I even like to do is just go stand on the back patio and watch the dogs and let the morning sunlight hit me. I think it's just like a plant, you know, you start to wake up. That's lovely. That sounds really nice. I, I don't have a back patio at the moment. I've, I envy <laughs> you that patio, but it, it, it's the, it sounds quite meditative to do that, that you're just yeah, kind of mer- can be. Yeah, merging with the day a little bit. Definitely. It can be when it's not over 100 degrees. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> it's snowing here at the moment, so there's no hope of that. Uh, yeah. 
Well, believe it or not, we might have a chance of some snow here in San Antonio this weekend. It's this is this is Texas weather. We have uh, we have 75 degrees today, tomorrow, and then it's got like the high in the four, in the 40s and a chance of snow over the weekend. So, oh my <laughs> that's <goodness>. Texas. <laughs> yes. Well, and yeah, the trees and the plants don't know what to do. We've got some trees that are starting to bloom and other ones that are still looking dead. And, you know, so it, it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> Peggy, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well was about the, uh, talk about this concept of two family meals. So a lot of our folks in our community have families that have different eating preferences. What are some tips that you can share with our community for finding some balance there? Because it is kind of a, a mutual respect balance game. Well, you've just said it, Vicki. It is about mutual respect. I think that there has been over the years, I've met people who've um, decided that their partner, for instance, is unevolved and a brute if if he or she doesn't eat a bit, uh, vegan diet. Uh, I think that's really unfair. In my in my world, readiness is everything. Whether you're a child or an adult, if you're not ready for a change, it's going to be very very painful and very unhappy. And I think that. The better motive, the better movement through this is to communicate and say, this is what I feel and this is why I want to follow a plant-based diet uh, and to allow the other person a similar stance. But the the basic, the fundamentals of of a relationship should not be held to ransom over that that change, that, that decision, and that there's plenty to do to establish comfortable boundaries between you or or within your relationship, but between you. So for instance, I've suggested as one example, if you want to follow a plant-based diet and your partner doesn't, wouldn't it be a good idea for you to get a second second set of pans so that any meat-based dinners can be made in those and any plant-based can be made in yours. Now that might sound silly to some people, but it can actually solve massive problems and allow the relationship to continue quite happily until the other person is ready to move a bit further. Similarly, just a simple discussion about, well, can we not have any meat in the fridge, please? Can maybe, maybe why don't you eat meat when you're out at lunch? This is when people went out to work, <laughs> but uh, when you're when you're out, but at home, let me cook you a plant-based meal. Another extension of that is to say, well, okay, we'll cook plant-based, but I'll also try and find one of these products that are and there are many now um, that are meat substitutes. Not not everyone is interested in those. Some people don't see the need to mimic something that resemb- you know, a meat-based product. But for other people, it's very reassuring. They see that the look of the plate is quite similar to what they were expecting as a meat-based person. Um, but, the, but the chop or the burger is not meat, it's plant-based. So everyone can stay happy in that particular situation. And these are very simple ideas. And there, there are many more that I'm sure people can dream up. Definitely save some internal wars there for sure. Yes, yes, yes. My my favorite saying is to make lunch, not war. (laughs) That would be a good t-shirt. Yes. That would be a very good t-shirt to have. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I like that. 
Let's talk about some of the recipes that are in your book. What in, uh, were these, uh, how did you create these recipes? I'm always fascinated because, you know, vegetarians and we're not, we have some recipes on our site, but we're not, uh, we don't really create a lot of our recipes. That's not really our, our gig. We don't do that ourselves. How did you get inspired to create some of these recipes? Are these things that you have been making over the years or did you, um, how did you create these? I, I have, I did create them over the years. I've been uh, vegan, fully vegan for over 30 years now. It's about almost 35 actually, but wow. um, yeah. Uh, and about five years after I became vegan, I, I had my first child. And then five years after that, another child. And so I've, I've cooked for the family for a very long time. And before that, as a girl coming from Midwest, from a large family, I cooked then as well. We all had to learn. We all did whatever needed to be done in that family home. And I I enjoyed cooking. So it was not a chore for me to do that. And basically, I just developed the recipes over all those years. And I kept a notebook, not just of recipes, but of family life in general. Um, I basically harvested those notes when I was asked to do this book. So they're all tried and tested over many years. They're most of our family favorites. And um, I'm getting some good feedback from people now who are trying them themselves. Yeah, that's great that you they come from family favorites, because I think that's one of the things that was hard for us when I first gave up you know, eating meat in 2013. I just kind of, like I said, we were eating junk food. But one of the things I learned over the years that helps help me, um, help me with that transition was to find recipes that I was already eating and then just try to make them vegetarian or vegan. So luckily for me, and I live in South Texas, which is huge Tex-Mex country. Tex-Mex food is like a Mexican Texas, Texan kind of for anybody not familiar with that. It's a, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So instead of like trying to do a complete 180 and and eat something that I'm not used to taking some of those recipes that that I already loved that I grew up on and just trying to, it actually made it fun kind of trying to make them vegan or vegetarian to see how, what substitutions I could make. And I think those things are, are helpful in helping someone stay the path. I agree. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you know, a, another good example um, is, you know, my Nana's, my grandmother's pot pie. She made a chicken pot pie and uh, my mom grew up, with it and then my mom made it for us and you know what and then I made it for for our for Vicky and myself and of course with the chicken you know we had to I I didn't want to give up the recipe so I adapted it to substitute some potatoes and some mushrooms um, and then keep the peas and carrots and keep the the sauce and the the crust and it worked great you know and so we still get to enjoy that. I think that's that's brilliant. That's exactly what I would be in favor of because it's it's natural. It's it's simple. Um, it's appealing. You already, as you say, Vicky, you you already know you like it. And Larissa, you that that little experiment of substitution is just it, it's a natural step, isn't it? Definitely. So before we wrap up, Peggy, anything you want to say to our community before we sign off? Well done. <laughs> well done. Hang in there. <laughs> uh, just take your time and relax. Any any single meal that that you can switch to a plant-based meal 
on a regular basis is going to benefit your health. It's going to benefit the environment. And of course, it's going to reduce the number of animals that are suffering. Yeah. And I also think that's just such a great, that's great advice because I think those are the things that help it make it, like you said, sustainable over a long period of time. I think when people are first thinking of, usually when I, when I talk to someone who is not plant-based and they say, well, I can't imagine giving up this, like their favorite burger or a steak. And I say, you know, if you think about it that way, that of course, you're never going to want to give that up. But if you just think about little steps you can take, if this is something you really want to go down, even like you said, if it's a meatless Monday, that all in aggregate is what helps move the needle. That's right. Yes. And it it's this thing of saying you don't, it's not all about saying no to meat. It's about moving forward in another way with, with a different kind of bounce in your step. Um, I've added a, a little rule right at the beginning of, of my book called the 80-20 rule, which is is not new in the sense that it's applied in business and, and all over, but it's this idea that 80% of your diet, if you're a meat eater, is already likely to be plant-based. And really, if you look closely, you'll find that is so. If you if you pour milk, dairy milk over your cereal in the morning, you still have the cereal, which is plant-based, and there's the orange juice beside it is plant-based etc. And if, if you just switch the milk to a plant milk, then suddenly you've got a plant-based meal. So usually about eight, uh, 80% is plant-based already. So it leaves only 20% to work with. And the things that you and Larissa have described about shifting or swapping ingredients in a favorite recipe for plant-based ones is a very quick and simple way to solve or to resolve the 20%. And you can do that over time because this must be a gradual a shift for people. Even if you, the decision to become a plant, fully plant-based is immediate and overnight, the process of changing, of moving your diet so that you're happy with it is a gradual process. And we need to feel that it's personal to us as well as comfortable for us. That is a great, great comment to end this uh, today's chat on. Thank you so much for being with us, Peggy. We will have copies of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a link of, of the uh, to the book in the show notes at vegetarianzen.com forward slash 378. And also the links where you can connect with Peggy if you're looking to learn more. Thank you so much for being here, Peggy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for both for having me. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Vegetarian Zen. We've created a free resource for you to show you five ways to sneak more fruits and veggies into your diet. You can download it right now by visiting vegetarianzen.com. Until next time, wishing you a happy body and a healthy mind.